0: Just a heads up, this episode contains sexually explicit content not typical of our show. So consider this your parental advisory sticker. Welcome to the Urban Legends Hotline, where we investigate the mysterious tales of your hometowns and stories passed through the old lockered halls of your schools to get to the haunted heart of the urban legends that you grew up hearing and maybe even telling. So now, here's today's tale told to you by our friend of a friend. Hey, Chelsea. Um, could you look into the Marilyn
1: Manson had his ribs removed rumor? <laughs> Not because I think it might be true, because I think we've already, we've moved, we've moved past that. But um, I think it's weird that like everyone has heard this. Like how did every child hear this? I heard it in primary school in England. And most of us didn't even know who Marilyn Manson was. Um, so yeah, that would be great. Um, this is Maddie, by the way. Thanks. Bye. I thought instead of reading rumors on the internet, let's go straight to the source with Manson and play the game rumor or fact. I didn't remove, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't remove my rib. Well, no, that's I wasn't e- on a wonder year. Okay. was... Well, so it? That was, so that was those okay. Okay. That, those two are too easy, right? Those are some exciting ones. Okay. All right.
0: I have a feeling that most of you have heard this one, the urban legend about a certain platinum-selling shock rocker who got a couple ribs surgically removed so that he could, drumroll please, suck his own dick. This was perhaps the most told pop culture myth of our millennial generation. And why wouldn't it be? It's got everything. A satanic rock and roller, an unconventional sex act, some radical surgical gore, and just a pinch of potential homosexuality. All the ingredients for a salacious rumor too freaking juicy not to pass on to all your friends. There is no evidence that anyone has ever had their ribs removed to assist in auto fellatio. And yet the myth was pervasive even outside the lockered hallways of America's schools, told as fact in newspaper stories and gossip columns, and spread in large part online using the primitive message boards of the early Internet. The legend was embedded so deep in American culture that it reached the meteoric heights of the wholesome Rosie O'Donnell show in the early 2000s when she made a joke about having four extra ribs put in at Tony Roma's. For this episode, we are going to look at this tale of surgical self-involvement from all the difficult-to-reach angles, where we'll find two other famous artists said to have had this same procedure for the same reason, one all the way back at the turn of the 20th century. We'll also learn about another classic rib-removal myth that has haunted starlets of every generation going all the way back to Victorian times. We'll also ask ourselves what was happening in popular culture at the time the rumor began to spread, and hopefully we'll get to the bottom of how this specific tale came to be and why we passed it on. So yeah... Let's just say that this urban legend takes the folklore term, oral history, very literally.
1: We will no longer be oppressed by the fascism of Christian morality. Straight to hell, you know them well, Marilyn Manson.
0: We thought that something really, really bad was going to happen when Marilyn Manson came. Born Brian Hugh Warner, our skinny pale outcast protagonist, created his goth rock band, also called Marilyn Manson, with the intent to horrify the evangelical sensibilities of 90s American culture. He designed an on and off stage demonic look with stringy black hair, a vampiric white face, shaved eyebrows, women's clothing and contacts that made one of his eyes look inhuman. His band's earliest gimmick was already begging for negative attention, with each member combining the name of a famous female sex symbol with a serial killer to create a new persona. Daisy Berkowitz, Sarah Lee Lucas, Gidget Geen, Twiggy Ramirez, and Madonna Wayne Gacy. At the tail end of the satanic panic, Manson's blood-soaked, Bible-desecrating, drug-addled, sexually explicit, suicide-obsessed, self-harming, fetish-clad, American-hating, psychopathic personality, music, and live shows, of which I watched many, led to campaigns of censorship, Christian protests, CD burnings and bans, legal troubles, and of course, the most outrageous rumors that his critics could ever dream up in their own perverted imaginations. Now, in order to bend ourselves into the awkward shape it takes to get our mouths, I mean minds, around a tale as lurid as this one, let's start by getting to know some other urban legends that followed our controversial subject during his early career. In 1998, a then 29-year-old Brian Warner wrote a memoir called The Long Road Out of Hell that I hated, in which he listed some of the more outrageous claims that he had found about himself on internet message boards. These are some of the less upsetting examples. Marilyn Manson will commit suicide during his Halloween concert by blowing up the venue and everyone in it. Manson killed his wife because she was pregnant. Then he took out the baby named Lucifer Satan Damien, LSD, and put it in an abortion crib. Marilyn Manson is actually the son daughter of Charles Manson and Marilyn Monroe. He got his penis tattooed black. He sold his right eye to the devil, and that is why he wears red makeup underneath his eye. And they get much more graphic from there. In his book, he sarcastically addressed a handful of the most popular urban legends about him. I've been working on my Manson impression, so here we go. If I really got my ribs removed, I would have been busy sucking my own dick on the Wonder Years instead of chasing Winnie Cooper. Plus, who has time to be killing puppies when you can be sucking your own dick? I think I'm gonna call the surgeon in the morning. Without context, this is certainly a bizarre excerpt, so let's go through it line by line. After addressing our titular legend about rib removal, Manson goes on to mention the late 80s sitcom The Wonder Years, which followed a middle-class family through the turmoils of the late 60s and early 70s. The main character, pre-teen Kevin Arnold, has a best friend named Paul Pfeiffer, who is a classic glasses-wearing string bean of a nerd who at one point dates Winnie Cooper, Kevin on-and-off girlfriend. Many of us heard the urban legend that this primetime dork who shared a passing resemblance to Brian Warner out of makeup had grown up and transformed from a lovable goof into the real-life vampire known as Marilyn Manson. It goes without debunking, but Paul Pfeiffer was played by actor Josh Saviano, not little Brian Warner. Now, on to the part about puppies. Let's look at an abridged chain email sent around 1999 and collected by Snopes dear, whomever may read this. You all know of the sick person named Marilyn Manson. I know someone who went to one of his concerts. He is abusing animals. He threw several puppies into the crowd before his show, and then he told the crowd that he would not start the show until the pups were killed. So, in conclusion, several puppies are killed at each Marilyn Manson concert. I am sending this to everyone on my buddy list, and if you could please send this to at least 10 people, we can make a difference. And let me just tell you that if you don't send this, you are a self-centered loser. Sometimes, instead of puppies, it's a bag of kittens. It just depends on the taste of the person telling the story. Marilyn Manson, to our knowledge, never killed a puppy or kitten on stage or forced his audience to sacrifice them before they got to see the show they paid for.
1: They had this weird thing. They said we had special uh, minions that we called the Santa Clauses, right? And they passed out big bags of cocaine and marijuana ah. to the audience. <laughs> you know what's weird about is that? It's absurd because yeah. we would be doing it. Yeah, right. You would be giving it. You, you would give it away for free. That's right. That's, but you know what's, what's what weird about that? Who are the
2: guys who dream this stuff up? Who those I are know? the sick
0: people. Yeah, those are the religious that's freaks who are out to than, get that's you. Sicker than will that's right. They probably have actually done stuff like then that. They said, uh, Many of the most extreme urban legends told about Manson did not arrive naturally, but were actually part of atrocity propaganda created by the American Family Association in 1997 with the goal of getting his shows canceled and banned from their cities and states. They created Fake affidavits written by fake teenagers who had attended Manson's concerts and the accusations held within could only come from the equally lurid imagination of fundamentalists with a purity agenda posted on their websites, emailed out in mass, and passed out in flyer form at his shows. Their recently saved teen sources stated that Manson had sex with a dog and a sheep on stage, that he made everyone, even children, get down on the floor and have sex with each other after handing out liquid ecstasy to everyone in the crowd, that he encouraged the crowd to sexually assault children after pushing all of them to the front for a future satanic sacrifice. That he performed oral sex with a child on stage, sacrificed a virgin on stage, that he put teenagers in cages and allowed the audience to beat them up. And this is really just the beginning the band immediately retaliated against the AFA, threatening to bring a lawsuit against them for their defamatory claims, and they eventually scrubbed every mention of Marilyn Manson from their websites.
2: Thanks for staying with us, in Bill O'Reilly, and in the Children at risk segment tonight, we continue our reporting on the corrosive effects of the popular music world on some American children. You've done some pretty bizarre things on stage. I mean, they tell me
1: that you uh, engaged in a sex act with another man on a stage in Miami. Is that true? To a certain degree. To a certain degree. It wasn't uh, so much a a formal sex act. No one was aroused. (laughs) Well, why did you do that? Why would you do that? Somebody ran on stage.
0: The truth is, the band did do some of the stuff in those affidavits, or at least they simulated the offensive acts named therein. They brutalized homemade papier-mâché animals and even rained down real animal gore onto the audience. Manson would sometimes cut himself and bleed on stage. He did full-on masturbate in front of the audience frequently, and he would sometimes sometimes give fellatio to his bandmate among other sexual acts. The AFA may have grossly exaggerated Manson's on-stage depravity, but in a way, they didn't even need to. The truth was shocking enough, I'm telling you, I saw a lot of things I can't unsee and heard a lot of things I can't unhear. And so it's understandable that Manson became a lightning rod for moral guardians in the late 90s, as the topics of Satanism, sexual perversion, teenage suicide, and violence were a focus of Democrats and Republicans alike. And as always, modern rock and roll was seen as the main culprit of the youth's steep moral decline. With song titles like Everlasting Cocksucker, Suicide Snowman, Kitty Grinder, and Shitty Chicken Gangbang, well, maybe we can actually sympathize a little with the Save the Children Crusade by Connecticut Senator Joseph Lieberman, who called them, quote, the sickest group ever promoted by a mainstream record company. Manson's lyrics are famously soaked in blasphemy, sex, and violence, meant to top the shock charts of the transgressive Olympic Games that was the 1990s. In his early song, Cake and Sodomy, he charmingly sings, I am the god of fuck. Go on and smile, you C-word. White trash, get down on your knees. Time for cake and sodomy. Stupid. Actual state bans on Marilyn Manson shows in Utah and South Carolina led to canceled concerts, and the mayor of Richmond, Virginia, actually offered the band tens of thousands of dollars to stay away from the city a Florida public school, actually tried to catch teens in the act and threatened to expel any students who were seen attending one of their shows. With his frightening, bloody, industrial, death metal, nightmare stage shows that includes a bizarre, ambiguous, and cruel sexuality, he has offended and titillated many and has become America's living, walking, breathing nightmare.
2: One item on Manson's resume of alleged sins
1: is leading his fans down the path of sexual perversion. This is sexuality, so it's messy and it's complicated. I think every day it's it's a real struggle between chaos and order in every aspect of my life. And it's always going to offend people and titillate others. If you try to dress it up and take it to your parents' house for dinner, it's never going to work. Yeah.
0: So now we'll look at the reality of Manson's behavior and how it could have contributed to our little piece of modern folklore. His bad reputation has become increasingly more deranged over the last few years as women have stepped forward to detail alleged abuse. But for this episode, we are only going to look at controversial incidents that may have helped create our urban legend, which means anything before or during 1997, where we find the earliest mentions of the story. After his very first show on his Portrait of an American Family tour in December of 1994, Manson was arrested in Jacksonville, Florida, for violating the adult entertainment code. The police report claimed that the reason for his arrest was that he was, quote, jacking off with a strap-on dildo and urinating on the crowd. Here is Manson detailing his side of the story.
1: They thought I was masturbating on stage with a dildo, when in fact I was wearing a pair of rubber pants that had some sort of uh, what I'd like to call design feature that looked penis-like. And uh, I managed to take them off in time before the police, who were there to raid the show for my uh, lascivious acts in Jacksonville, Florida arrested me, so when I went to jail, and these guys were very much into uh, conservative Christian beliefs, which they really liked to fortify with beating the out of me because, uh, well, it was my fault when they said, where's the dildo at? And I said, why do you want the dildo? And that didn't go over well.
0: So they said, In another excerpt from his memoir, he actually guesses at what could have started our urban legend, quote, For our first set on New Year's Eve, I wore a tuxedo and a top hat. For the second set, a girl named Terry disguised herself as me, wearing a black wig, a tuxedo, a top hat, and a very realistic strap-on dildo. When she walked on stage, everybody thought it was me with my dick hanging out of my pants, which was nothing new by that point. And as the band began its version of cake and sodomy, I crept around her and gave her a blowjob, so it seemed like I was sucking my own dick. Maybe that's where the rumor that I surgically removed my ribs so that I could give myself fellatio started. I would actually like to point to my own Exhibit C, a 1997 Rolling Stone interview I unearthed that followed the release of the song Tourniquet from his album Antichrist Superstar. He told the interviewer that the song came straight from his twisted dreams. I've always had these dreams about making a girl out of all these pieces of prosthetic limbs and then taking my own hair and teeth that I saved from when I was a kid and very ritualistically creating this companion. More after this. plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love
2: talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate back in Bigger Than Ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts, or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. dot com. More than one hundred topics are already available. Subscribe
0: today. And now back to the show. So you're going to kind of follow in the footsteps of Prince and just
1: no, I be wish done I with I the could. label. And, and I, w- I wish I could. And he was so ahead of his time. And what he did before the era of when. It could have really had the impact that it could today that he was the first one that did it the best.
2: Everyone thought he was crazy. but
0: When it comes to this urban legend of rock star rib removal, Marilyn Manson is not the first to be accused of this kind of salacious self-love it appears that us millennials actually appropriated the myth straight from the dirty minds of our rebellious Gen X elders. The otherworldly brilliant artist known and formerly known as Prince was an unlikely sex icon, small-framed and clocking in at 5'2", But it didn't matter. His sultry, smoldering persona had much of the counterculture in agreement. This was the hottest man alive, and he definitely knew it. By the second half of the 1980s, it seems people thought that even he wanted to suck his dick. (sighs)
2: Some religious leaders are also expressing their worry over what they call Prince's permissive attitude towards sex and drugs. Some believe the temptations might be too much for young minds. I think these kids are being suckered into this. In
0: his early Almost career, Saturday. Prince was a very controversial figure to moral crusaders of every stripe, perhaps even the most controversial. In 1984, Prince Fever was at a fever pitch, and Tennessee Senator Al Gore and his wife, Tipper, innocently picked up a copy of Purple Rain, the hottest album of the year, as a gift for their young daughter. But when they heard the song, Darling Nikki, well...
1: I bought the Purple Rain album for our 11-year-old. I felt that it was inappropriate for her and her 8- and 6-year-old sister to hear a song describing a girl masturbating in a hotel lobby. I had no warning. In fact, all I knew was from the me- that Prince was the new creative uh, teen idol on the scene.
0: That same year, Tipper joined forces with other prominent Washington moms to create the infamous Parents' Music Resource Center. Together, they released their official... Filthy Fifteen, the porn rock songs that they found the most offensive, which included Black Sabbath's Trashed, ACDC's Let Me Put My Love Into You, Madonna's Dress You Up, Motley Cruz's Bastard, and Cindy Lauper's Shebop. But Prince's darling Nikki sat at the very top of the list because for Tipper, it was personal. After several hearings, the Parents Music Resource Center succeeded in creating their parental advisory stickers for CDs and their rating system, X for profane or sexually explicit lyrics, O for occult references, DA for lyrics about drugs and alcohol, and V for for violence. The PMRC would, more than a decade later, successfully lobby for the same explicit content warnings on Marilyn Manson CDs. Musician and producer Rick James famously hated Prince for his persona and likely his popularity and sounded a lot like another tipper gore, quote, He's a mentally disturbed young man. He sings songs about oral sex and incest. Now, Prince did indeed write fondly of incest, with lyrics like, My sister never made love with anyone but me. Incest is everything it's said to be. Like Manson, he loved writing explicitly about sexual acts with hits like Jack You Off and Head, an oral sex anthem. Also like Manson, the ambiguousness around his gender expression prompted never-ending speculation about his sexuality. When the 1981 album Controversy came out, Prince mimicked the questions in his lyrics, Am I straight or gay? In the time of a heavy metal moral panic, Prince lacked some of the satanic notoriety of his musical peers and eventually Marilyn Manson, but they shared a decadent notion of overt sexuality that the American mainstream found intolerable. <laughs> Que la tirita sí había rico. But our urban legend stretches back even farther than that, all the way back to the turn of the 20th century, when yet another controversial figure was said to have removed his ribs, for auto fellatio. But this time, he was a royal Italian army officer and renowned poet, you know, the prototypical rock stars of yore. He was also considered an early architect of modern fascism, but that's a story for another day. Gabriele da Nuncio's sordid, sensational life was constant fodder for early tabloids and outraged moralists. And like Manson and Prince, he courted controversy at every turn, seeming to gain power from transgressing the boundaries of polite society. He was famous for his cocaine-fueled orgies. He rode his horse naked. He enjoyed posing nude for photographs. He bought lavish gifts and poured cash all over his potential concubines, of which there were more than a 1,000, many of them quite high profile. And he also required his housekeeper to sleep with him three times a day. He loved to wear custom shoes with little tassels on them in the shape of penises. He had a special robe with a dick hole sewn into it. And of course, there was the rumor that he removed a couple ribs so that he could suck his own dick, presumably through the special little robe hole. A famous Parisian courtesan, who D'Annunzio tried to woo with a carriage chocked full of roses and a whole bunch of servants lobbing roses at her while she ascended the steps of his mansion, described the moment thusly. Here's my French accent. There was before me a frightful gnome with the red-rimmed eyes and no eyelashes, no hair, greenish teeth, bad breasts, and the reputation, nevertheless, for being a ladies' man. Not just a ladies' man, but the most potent sex symbol of his time. Americans were not unaware of this Italian sexual powerhouse, but his exhibitionism was not as welcomed by our Puritan sensibilities. Just like Manson and Prince before him, his suspiciously androgynous qualities were remarked upon often. In 1902, author Henry James called him, quote, a queer, high-flavored fruit from overseas. But some American women had a different take, like whiskey heiress Natalie Barney, who was quoted as saying of Denuncio, He was all the rage. A woman who had not slept with him made herself ridiculed. Now, it's difficult to know what was true and what was myth, and what stories occurred naturally and which were started by Denuncio himself. After all, he once wrote, "'The world must be convinced that I am capable of anything.'" Classically, one rumor said he liked to cook and eat the meat of infants. We know that Denuncio did not have any ribs surgically removed, but it's possible, even likely, that it was one of the many rumors he started about himself, perhaps inspired by another unrelated urban legend that was going around at the very same time. Before these gruesome tales of surgical rib removal centered on sexual self-discovery, they were attached to controversial fashion fads of upper-crust Victorian women and their middle-class emulators at a time when attaining a seemingly unattainable hourglass figure was all the rage. They achieved this look using tightly laced corsets that pinned their waists to such an extreme degree that their shapes looked like a wasp's sectioned body, leading to the term wasp waist. It was very hip to be photographed in silhouette to show the squeezed fruit of their breathless labor. But as usual, this trend had the elders up in arms about the apparent physical dangers of such a practice, and they were morally outraged at the vanity of those who would risk their health to fulfill a fashion fad. Soon, rumors spread that the only way these women could ever achieve such a figure would be to partake in a frightening new underground surgery in which a doctor would remove their lower, floating ribs. It's difficult to mark the spread of this legend or where it originated, but if we look to 1890, there is some evidence to suggest that American impresario and Broadway producer Florence Ziegfeld Jr. may have either created or at least harnessed the rumor as part of a PR blitz to get any and all attention on his new rising star, Anna Held, who happened to have one of the smallest wastes in show business. How likely is it that such a treacherous surgery would be successfully performed in the late 1800s? Not likely at all. Even routine procedures at the turn of the century had a devastating rate of failure, and it's almost certain that a patient undergoing a rib removal would not have made it out alive. Corset expert and museum curator at the Fashion Institute of Technology, Valerie Steele, said it definitively, quote, No Victorians had ribs removed. Around the same time that the Prince Otto fellatio rumors were gaining steam in the body conscious 1980s, the fashionable rib removal legend returned yet again with a vengeance. It had already been attaching itself to a bevy of the hottest singers and actresses since at least the 1950s. Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor, Jane Fonda, Raquel Welch, Pam Anderson, Shakira, Janet Jackson, Britney Spears, Kate Moss, Tori Spelling, and Kim Kardashian, among many others, are all said to have undergone this major surgery. But none have been haunted by this urban legend like poor Share. One of the first official folkloric accusations leveled against the pop goddess came in 1988, when a French magazine called Paris Match told its readers that Cher had paid for a number of extreme cosmetic surgeries, one of which helped her keep her boyish figure, the removal of two of her lower ribs. Though Cher took the magazine to court over the slander and they were forced to make a tiny little retraction, it was too late. The myth was out of the bag, and the story ran as fact in a number of publications. Here she is on Oprah a couple years later, trying her best to set the record straight.
1: So you have not had your ribs removed? No, I mean, I don't even know that there is. An operation that could re- remove your ribs? Because you need your ribs to get well, around. Yeah, yep. and also, it it just it wouldn't even occur to me because I have, I mean, I have a small rib cage. It just wouldn't occur to me to do something like that. Because you've been skinny all your life. Yeah, and also, I mean, I don't know what people think if you could have your ribs removed. You'd have a scar, and everyone's seen pretty much all of my body. And you know, when you have work done, you can't remove a rib without having. Did you ever have any lipo done?
0: No, no. This rumor made Cher more than a little sour, as she said that she had killed herself in the gym to get that banging body, and she found it unfair that this story took away from that hard work. Interestingly, another celebrity accused of having her ribs removed to create an impossibly tiny wasp waist was burlesque dancer Dita Von Teese, the very tightly corseted girlfriend and eventual wife of Marilyn Manson.
1: A lot of people put a lot of emphasis on, oh, the, me wearing corsets and the pain and suffering. But I think it's a little bit like wearing a high-heeled shoe. But there's something about it that we love, is that manipulation and the, the sort of discipline and the way that everything changes about your body shape. And that's what I love about things like corsets and, and high-heeled shoes.
0: More after this. And now, back to the show. Unsurprisingly, autofillatio was a hot topic even in ancient times, where we can find it referenced in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, dated to 50 BC. On one page of the papyrus, there is a depiction of the earth god Geb, quote, sucking himself off the actual phrase used by Dr. Richard Bruce Parkinson, a professor of Egyptology at the University of Oxford. He told Salon in an interview, quote, it is thought that this is a symbolic representation of the way in which the earth can create things out of itself, all by itself. It seems to be an image of a self-sustaining act. In Egyptian mythology, anything to do with creation is often conceived of as a sexual act. Another Egyptologist named David Lorton points to a poem on a fragment of papyrus called The Book of Overthrowing Apophis. It tells the story of the sun god Ra, creating a god and goddess by sucking his own dick and then spitting out his semen onto the ground before him. There is much debate around this next part, but some scholars believe that ancient wall paintings depict Osiris' son Horus keeping the stars in place, ordering the very universe itself by practicing auto fellatio and then swallowing his own semen. We can also look to our religious origin story in Genesis when Adam removes his own rib to make himself a girlfriend, maybe even one who'd be willing to blow him. Our modern conception of auto may have began at the tail end of the 1970s golden age of porn. In the 1981 skin flick called Lips, a young Ron Jeremy, who would go on to hold the Guinness World Record for most appearances in porn, performed the sex act on himself as a kind of freaky parlor trick. Just a few years later, the prince legend first started going around. When the Marilyn Manson version got started in the crude 1990s, there were plenty of references to Otto permeating pop culture, especially for teenage boys and young men. An image that appears to show someone engaged in the act is included in Tool's 1996 album art for anemia. It appeared in movies like Saving Silverman and Clerks. God.
1: Come on. Have you ever tried to suck your own dick? No. Yeah, right. You're so repressed. Because I never tried to suck my own dick? No, because you won't admit to it. Except a guy's a fucking pervert because he tries to get out on himself. You're as curious as the rest of us, pal. You've tried it.
0: It was also a popular bit for stand-up comic Bill Hicks.
1: I actually, uh, a woman one night yelled out, Yeah, you ever try it? I said, Yeah. <laughs> Almost broke my back.
0: But Otto Fellatio had already been the subject of inquiry decades before. And it was generally assumed by establishment psychology that the sex act was only practiced by closeted gay men. But then, in the late 40s, famous sexologist Alfred Kinsey wrote about the practice in his report, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, saying that, quote, a considerable portion of the population does record attempts at self fellatio at least in early adolescence. But he continued to say that only two or three out of a thousand are actually able to reach But still, whenever blowing yourself is brought up, there is usually some kind of reference to the homo-ness of it all. So it makes sense that the performative queer showmanship of Manson, Prince, and Denuncio helped them become the subjects of this particular urban legend. Throughout the decades following Kinsey's report, the same age-old question continued to be at the center of this unconventional sex act. Uh, guys, does it make me gay if I suck my own dick? We'll let Will Ferrell answer that question in this early 2000s Saturday Night Live sketch that takes place in a yoga studio.
2: You know, if that's why you want to do yoga, then you're doing it for the wrong reason. Yeah, he can't teach us because he can't do it. Mm -hmm. Oh, I I could, but I don't Ah. want to do that to myself. I'm not gay. Mm. Hey, You masturbate with your own hand, don't you? Does that make you gay? No. (laughs) That's good logic. Mm -hmm. He's got a point. I have to agree with him.
0: Now, hear this. Before the wasp waist craze of the late 1800s, men were sometimes known to wear manly corsets of their own to support their backs when hunting or during military training. But eventually, these corsets became a fashion trend for the elite young men of the next generation. You know, your macaronis, your dandies. And getting that impossibly slim waist was a hipster must. In addition to sporting special pads that could enhance the chest, ass, and shoulders, and most importantly, for some reason, the shins. Of course, these namby pambies became the source of much public ridicule, and their effeminate-style choices were met with accusations that they probably engaged in homosexual acts. Fascinatingly, 100 years later in the 1990s, the corset became a Marilyn Manson signature onstage outfit. Although I couldn't find any pictures of Prince donning an official corset, many of his outfits did get very close, and his dress was often described in the media as dandy-like. When you combine Marilyn Manson and Prince's controversial hypersexual personas, along with their feminine dress and their skinny little waists, they both become perfect candidates for the merging of these two different rib removal legends. Marilyn Manson and Prince were perhaps the most controversial performers of their time when it came to sex, whether they were singing about it, acting it out on stage, or talking about it explicitly behind the scenes. And Gabriele DiNunzio's reputation was very similar at the turn of the century. All three were also not attractive by the normal standards of masculine beauty, but were nonetheless potent sex icons, and I think it's fair to say that this may have prompted envy over their ability to get some of the hottest women in their times, and a whole lot of them. It's possible that this legend was what they call a sour grapes story, a way to cut these rock stars down a peg and to cut down the famous women who had achieved that enviable figure, those who were accused of having a vanity so violent that they would actually cut themselves open to get to that physical perfection. I can't say whether the true selves of these celebrities were overly vain, but that doesn't matter because it's what the public saw when they judged their infamous behavior. Gabriele D'Annunzio was known for his public displays of self-aggrandizement that bordered on self-obsession. He was a man that flew a plane over Vienna to throw out thousands of flyers with his own poetry, before marching with a handful of army buddies in black to conquer the city of Fiume, yelling out from the governor's mansion. Ike Homo, the same words spoken by Pontius Pilate when he recognizes Jesus as the one true Messiah. But in this context, Denuncio was talking about himself. Barney Hoskins, author of the biography Prince, Imp of the Perverse, wrote, quote, his live shows were nonstop parades of narcissistic exhibitionism. Marilyn Manson simply did whatever controversial thing he wanted with a frightening level of confidence and an unbridled self-indulgence that became his artistic philosophy they each reveled in sexual excess and sexual decadence. Manson called himself the God of Fuck, and both Prince and Denuncio fulfilled that role in their own times. And all three men were acutely aware of this power they possessed. Dr. Sigmund Freud and his psychoanalytic successors conceptualized the sex act of auto as a symbolic and I guess literal ring of narcissism. Let's revisit our listeners question of why the tale of Marilyn Manson's rib removal was so widely told among our generation. First of all, the timing of this legend fits so neatly into the humor of the envelope-pushing pop culture of the late 90s and early 2000s that was ruled by the jackassian rude boys who would have loved nothing more than a rumor about gruesome surgery and auto fellatio, a dream topic of conversation. The myth also fits perfectly into the timeline of the world wide web with online communication exploding in the late 90s, us millennial kids and our Gen X role models entering the vulgar wild west of the unregulated internet, able to spread wild stories far and wide and fast in a way that we never had before and without much supervision. And so, the legend was able to materialize in schools all over the country and all over the world. And as mentioned, it's a legend that has sex, gore, and a controversial celebrity. I mean, how would we not pass on a story like that? Folkloric urban legends often have a warning underneath the sensationalism that fuels their spread, a message that makes them last the test of time, transforming over decades or even centuries. Marilyn Manson shredded American purity to bloody ribbons and embodied, for better and worse, the nihilistic rebellion of a generation of pop goths and pop punks. At the time, it seemed like nothing was off limits. It seemed that no one could go too far, and being overly self-confident and overly self-indulgent were traits that, perhaps, were a little too revered. Maybe the moral of our millennial fable is this. Beware the twin beasts of vanity and lust, lest you end up sucking your own dick. This was American Hysteria's Urban Legends Hotline. If you have an urban legend that you remember hearing growing up and you'd like us to do an incredibly detailed deep dive, just go to AmericanHysteria.com and you can leave us a message there. That's our Urban Legends Hotline. If you want to get more of our show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash American Hysteria or subscribe on Apple Plus. You'll get ad-free episodes as well as bonus content, like the talk show that I do with our producer Miranda, where we tell you stories related to the topics we've been covering. So become a patron or Apple subscriber. It's a great way to help us out. Another great way to help us is to leave us a review on the app of your choice. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. We have sound design by Clear Como Studios. Our research assistant is Riley Swadelius smith And our editor and producer is Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening. And I'll see you in the metaphorical millennial mosh pit. Until then, I hope you have a great week.
2: The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos.